night with singing from all three hymnals, and there's two more to come, so um, you can just be ready for those. But I want to ask you to turn with me this evening to the eighth chapter of Romans. This morning we read and considered the conversion of the Apostle Paul, certainly because it was in the context of the last of the post-resurrection appearances we've been looking at. So I thought it fitting that we look at Paul this evening as we come around the table of the Lord. And I want to read this most familiar and precious chapter of Romans 8. But before we read, I want you just to perhaps seek to join with me in a little bit of a frame of mind. We can read the Scriptures, we can read the Apostle Paul, and we can often and rightly think of, here's an Apostle presenting something that I need to hear. Well, I don't want to take anything of that away from Romans 8. But I want you to think tonight as we read Romans 8 that yes, here's an apostle telling me what I need to hear. But here's also a fellow sinner telling me what's happened to him. Here's testimony. Here's a man that has experienced the truth and the power of the Gospel. And he shares that, certainly under inspiration, with us. And so let us read together these familiar words. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, 
that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of Him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Hey, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we can say amen to the public reading of God's Word. Let's bow our heads together in a moment's prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we have rejoiced tonight to sing together testimonies of praise and adoration to a God, to a Savior who is worthy. We've read tonight one of those capital portions of Scripture. Lord, with promise upon promise, with confidence upon confidence, not in self at all. There's a denial of self-merit and self-worth throughout all these pages. 
But there's hope in Christ. Lord, we even marvel at that phrase. Guilty in ourselves as we know that we are. Who is He that condemns? Christ has died. Lord, give us such gospel understanding tonight. Prosper Your Word that we've read, we meditate upon now. And Lord, even make use of these emblems to consider afresh the work of our Savior. We might rightly remember Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, it doesn't change the truth. Perhaps it somewhat changes our perspective to have Paul come alongside us and rejoice at what he rehearses for us here that's true of all of God's people in the Gospel of Christ. I just want to focus on that opening verse this evening. The familiar, precious, and powerful words that open the chapter. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It was Octavius Winslow in his really precious treatment of the chapter that said the chapter that opens with no condemnation is a chapter that closes with no separation. For those that are in Christ and are justified, their condemnation is past and nothing can separate them from their God. But as we consider this morning something of that unlikely but chosen vessel that was the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners. And yet I put to you that any sinner, any saved sinner, that knows himself, as we know our own hearts far better than we know the hearts of any others, isn't that the testimony and the confession of us all? We are the chief of sinners. And yet Jesus died for me. You look at the verse and there's an implication that is all over the beginning. And that is that there's condemnation that has rested upon the people spoken of in this chapter. We read elsewhere in the New Testament that those that are unbelievers are condemned already. We're born sinners and fallen sons of Adam. And if you look at the Apostle as he builds in this book of Romans a quite straightforward and logical argument and presentation of the Gospel. After he's introduced himself and introduced the theme of the Gospel of God, he begins the opening argument. And what is it? It's the revelation of wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he goes point by point. And he speaks to us then of condemnation. And so as we consider condemnation itself, can you understand with me first that that condemnation is universal in its reach? You look at Romans 1. Well, it's like reading... Well, do people read newspapers anymore? Is print media a thing of the past? I guess it is. Well, you read or you hear the news or you walk down the streets and you're confronted with Romans 1. 
an apostate culture that has turned its back on truth, it has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and it's spiraling ever downward into deeper and deeper sins and points of perversion. Condemnation is universal in its reach. There's none righteous, no, not one. But Paul reaches that conclusion in chapter 3, not merely after speaking of the Gentiles in Romans 1, but he He pauses in chapter 2 to bring alongside the Jews and their religion and their claims of being God's people and being right with God. And yet he shows that for all their ceremony, for all their professions of being God's people, none of that can make them God's people. He's not a Jew which is one outwardly. You can be as religious as you want. It won't remove your condemnation. It won't change the fact that you're condemned. Condemnation is universal in its reach. He comes to that conclusion. We before concluded, we found that all are under sin. Some of that we've worked through before just with regard to some of the nicer points of doctrine. It's not just the Jews, but it's the Gentiles as well that were proven to be subjects of God's law and to be condemned by it. Because they are all, we are all transgressors of God's law. Condemnation is universal in its reach. But consider with me this it's also limited in its recognition. I'm sure you found often in your sharing of the Gospel with others that one of the most difficult things at times is to persuade the other that they're lost, that they are under condemnation, that they have need. That's true, there are those that admit that and they're striving to work it off. But in many ways, it's even that attempt to work it off that's a manifestation that they really don't understand their need. The fact that they're powerless to do anything about it. One of the things that was, I guess, foundational in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is that the pilgrim, that man that would be named Christian, discovered that he lived in a city of destruction. And it caused a great burden to be formed upon his back and it bowed him down. He recognized his condemnation and the neighbors that mocked him. They thought he had gone a little loose in the head for those that didn't recognize. They refused to admit their condemnation. They refuse to acknowledge their sin. Condemnation is not merely universal in its reach, however limited in its recognition, but it's singular in its remedy. And of course, that's what Paul has been explaining in these opening chapters of Romans. That there's sin and condemnation, and death in that first Adam that is the head of us all. But there's righteousness, and there's justification, and there's life 
in that second Adam who's given himself for his people. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's one of the sad indications of the apostasy of modern times that Christian churches have in many, many cases and over many, many decades in various ways tried to say that, well, our Jesus isn't really the only way. It always takes me back if you deal with Christians or deal with unbelievers rather, whether they're pagans or whether they're religious, that it somehow offends them. I mean, you can think of that for us to be offended at God. It somehow offends them that God hasn't made multiple ways of salvation. Instead of humbling them and causing them to rejoice that He has made one. Condemnation is singular in its remedy. It is only in Christ. But this text is turned from the negatives of the opening argument of Romans about the revelation of wrath and of condemned sinners. This is a positive statement that there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. This speaks of justification. This speaks of coming out from under wrath and being accepted in the Beloved. And so as you turn to consider justification, that positive change, first, this is particular in its realm. You think of Jew or Gentile as we see in those opening chapters. Are there different paths for them? Are there multiple ways of salvation as we've just discussed? No, there's but one. We could tarry a while and go further into our doctrines of grace when we think about the particular aspects of redemption. That's for another time and place. But I'll just put this before you. We look, and and sometimes even our theological opponents come up with the text, whosoever will. Well, that's a text that should never scare a Calvinist. Whosoever will is quite a limiting phrase. What of those who want? What of those who see no need? What of those who are not brought to a new heart and mind to recognize and embrace Christ as He's freely offered in the Gospel. Justification is particular in its realm. It belongs only to those that repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. But think with me also that it's perfect in its realization. This is one of the things I think that has plagued American evangelicals at least for a big piece of the 20th century, is they didn't realize the truths of justification. The justification is complete. There are some believers that are 
kind of maybe almost justified, and some, that oh, that's a good fellow, he's a little more justified than me, and well, those people, they're just in another league. We might have to call them saints. Well, wait a minute, the Bible speaks of all believers in Christ as saints, does it not? There are no weak spots in justification. There's no 80% or 70% or 95%. No, it's a work that is finished. Remember in our catechisms, our doctrinal formulations, Justification is a work done for us. Sanctification is a work done in us, to be sure. And those that claim to be justified, that have no evidences of grace, no evidences of new birth, of passing from death unto life, as we considered that text this morning, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Yes, there's work that He does in us. And that work is incomplete in this life. We do have different stages of growth, if you will. There's maturity in the part of some saints and weakness and even the babyhood of some that we read of in the New Testament. But we're constantly in this life growing in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that work is partial and it's growing. But not so with our justification. And not so with our glorification. Sanctification will issue in something. In that final day of the Lord's appearing, well, the New Testament tells us we'll be changed into His image. We'll see Him as He is. One of the glories of, well, that pilgrim journey of sanctification is that we have the bedrock confidence that we are justified. And I say it's perfect in its realization. We're not partially justified. It's not we hope that we get to heaven by the skin of our teeth. He has made us His own. We're today seated in heavenly places in Christ. Our names are there, written upon Him. And I say thirdly, our justification is present in its reality. Here's where we come to that assurance that flows from understanding that perfect justification. It's why the doctrines of grace, it's why understanding imputed righteousness, it's why those, those precious details of the Gospel, that Christ suffered a penalty, He suffered our condemnation, our transgressions of God's law, vicariously, in our place. And He also worked out all the righteous requirements of that law that we transgressed, He perfectly fulfilled. And He fulfilled that vicariously too. That's the righteousness that's counted as ours. I think it was Winslow that 
put through the refrains. What if I'm troubled? I'm not condemned. What if I'm impoverished? I'm not condemned. What if I'm tempted? I'm not condemned. What if men reject me? God has accepted me. I'm not condemned. This is a present reality of all the people of God. But finally, it is also permanent in its results. We don't read there in that sequence, that real scriptural statement of what we in our theology call the order of salvation. It doesn't say whom He justified. Some of them ultimately got glorified. Whom He justified, then He also glorified. There is a permanent result that we await. To enter His presence, to sing His praise with an unsinning heart. I've been blessed tonight in the singing of the hymns. I'm blessed often more on the Sunday evenings because I know it's coming from you guys. It's what's on your hearts to sing. Well, tonight, not only do we sing, but we celebrate in this divinely appointed way, remembering the cost and yet the reality of our justification. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and his ever-deepening understanding of the Gospel. When he, let's say, penned phrases earlier in Romans where sin abounded, grace superabounded. He understood what had been freely given him in Jesus. He can write these words, yes, as an apostle instructing us in truth. But he also wrote them as a fellow sinner rejoicing in what had happened to him. Let us tonight rejoice in what has happened to us in passing from death unto life, in passing from condemnation to justification, to be accepted in the blood.